It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm going to have to use my inside voice today. I've got one of these uh, bad winter coughs, which hopefully won't disturb our progress here. You know, when you're in the, either the television business, radio business, or podcasting business, the one thing you have to have is your voice. Like, there's no substitute for it. And that's why you see people taking, uh, you know, drinking honey and hot tea and cough drops sometimes. Uh, but it's Friday, so we'll all have a good weekend coming up. Uh, we have a lot of puzzle pieces for Media Buzz on Sunday morning, 11 Eastern, but, man, this is a tough week to put them together, just in terms of the order, and I won't have to bore you with all that. Let's just say if there is some sort of U.S. retaliation against Iran or its proxies, that will probably lead the show. If there is no retaliation, I mean, the president has said it's coming, but it's been days now, then we may come at it a little different way. Anyway, this, this is just amazing. Uh, Billy Joel putting out his first new song in 17 years and first single in 31 years. Showbiz 411 says it picks up just as you would expect. The song will remind you of Piano Man and She's Always a Woman, heavy on classical-sounding piano and undeniably rich melody that folds back into an instantly catchy hook. Um, I don't know if you're as talented as Billy Joel, and I know he has played over the years to many, many sold-out arenas. Why not write new music? Is it because he just decided to he had plenty of money and he's going to retire, or had he run out of ideas until now? I don't know but I'm sure we'll hear more from him. All right, this is the only, I think the only Taylor Swift mention I'm going to use on this podcast today. But it involves the presidential campaign, so how can I resist? Or at least it gives me cover. I mean, you know, go, you look everywhere. Go online, flip on the TV. Everybody and his mother is offering the take on Taylor Swift. Why MAGA is mad at her and Joe Biden wanting to get her endorsement, which he got in 2020, and I don't think most people noticed, but Taylor Swift is a much more gargantuan figure today, certainly much richer. So Nikki Haley is on CNN, and Jake Tapper says to her, what about this uh, Taylor Swift Obsession. So Haley says, I don't know what the obsession is. Taylor Swift is allowed to have a boyfriend. Taylor Swift is a good artist. I've taken my daughter to Taylor Swift concerts before. You know, to have a conspiracy theory of all this is bizarre. Nobody knows who she's going to endorse, but I can't believe that's taken over our national politics. Maybe there's just some level on which this is fun and all the news lately is so serious. You know, international pop star queen, football player who's going to the Super Bowl next weekend. Um, 
the Biden campaign wanting more celebrities on board. We'll find some way to do more. (laughs) But let's get to some much more serious stuff. So, story number one. I was in the car yesterday and listening to this on cable, not knowing it was coming, seeing the videos later, when Lloyd Austin talked about, you know, one of the biggest blunders that I can think of any high-ranking official making in some years, in the sense that it all could have been avoided if it was not for his pension for secrecy. So he came out and took a lot of questions, in fairness, from the Pentagon press corps. You know, many of whom have traveled with him and so forth, so everybody's question was uh, prefaced with, well, I wish you a speedy recovery, I hope the recovery goes well. In fact, a little bit of color, since he's just come back to the Pentagon, and Austin is limping a little bit, and outside the room where they're having the presser, there's a golf cart. Not that he's sneaking away to hit some balls. He, he, he uses it to get around. The Pentagon, it's hard to describe. I mean, it is like the most massive building I've ever been in. You know, five sides, obviously, duh. But the hallways just go on forever. I mean, it's got to be more than a city block. I don't even know how to describe it. So it's not like, you know, he uses it to get uh, to travel 60 feet. It's a, it's a gigantic building. Anyway, here's what he said and what he knew he had to say. We did not handle this right. I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public, and I take full responsibility. I apologize to my teammates and the American people. Well, that's a good apology. Unfortunately, it comes about five weeks after he first checked into the hospital here in the Washington area. The first of two visits, the first was to have a procedure done related to having prostate cancer. And the second was to deal with complications from that initial procedure. Uh, Washington Post's a backlash, rare instance during Biden's tenure, when a cabinet official looked out of step with the White House, frustrating some in the administration who, though sympathetic to Austin's diagnosis, felt he and his staff exhibited exceedingly bad judgment that could prove costly in an election year. You know, this isn't, not to denigrate any other job, but this isn't the HUD secretary or the interior secretary. Guys, the civilian in charge of the armed forces reporting to the commander-in-chief. And he wasn't totally transparent yesterday in the sense that You know, there's several investigations or reviews, as they call them, going on. And he says that he's cooperating. But, you know, several of his answers were, well, let's wait and see how this plays out. Let's wait till we get to the reviews. Um, I don't think the reviews are going to exonerate him. And the press corps across the river here, not quite as rabid as the White House press corps, but... You did have people who ordinarily cover the White House or often show up at the White House, I should say, like NBC's Peter Alexander just said to him, this happened to anybody, any other employee 
that person would probably be out of a job. Have you considered resigning or should you resign? Austin said no, but again reiterated that he had made a mistake, that he had handled it badly. Another journalist asked, what about your chief of staff who was was on vacation and somehow didn't manage to get the message to the White House, let alone the media and the public? He said she's not offered her resignation. And here's what I think. Part, some of the questions, understandably, you're talking to the defense secretary, who, by the way, doesn't love talking to reporters, and is just not a natural performer. There was a lot of uh, uh, and struggling with his words. Some people are good on TV, some people not so much. But there were questions about the Middle East, about the uh, killing of the three American soldiers in Jordan, by a drone that U.S. officials have determined was an Iranian drone supplied to one of its many many, uh, offshoot terror organizations. And so he answered those as well, actually more comfortably, because he's a military guy, a former military guy. And I think the White House concluded that they got to get him out there, let him take his lumps, let him talk to reporters who are going to beat up on him and ask uncomfortable questions so that the next time he goes out, perhaps in the coming days when there is the promised retaliation um, from President Biden and the administration, and I don't know what's taking so long. A lot of people are saying, you know, Joe Biden should have struck back right away. But, you know, they're now leaking that this is retaliation is going to play out over weeks. And so... I guess they're drawing up target lists and doing other kinds of military calculations. So I think this was, you know, they had to pop the bubble. And Austin had to stand up to these questions. Um, the most interesting part of it, and the part that I thought he was speaking most from the heart, had to do with, do you regret reinforcing secrecy among other prostate cancer patients, and especially the black community. And blacks suffer disproportionately from prostate cancer. And Austin deflected it slightly by saying it's probably not an issue of secrecy as much as it is an issue of privacy. Cancer, period, is very private. Among the black community, it's even more a thing that people want to keep private. And he kind of said that he understands it, but regrets that he didn't set a better example. And then, you know, they they kept circling back after questions about Iran or Syria or Jordan. In my case, I should have informed my boss. I did not. And again, I apologize to him for not doing so. Um, he, sh- he showed flashes of humor, saying his physical therapist, I guess he's undergoing that, is a sadist. And he said, and then he was asked, how's the recovery going? He says, it's slow right now. I won't be ready for the Olympics, but I'll improve. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Story two. This poll of South Carolina voters getting a lot of attention. Donald Trump leading Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, by 26 points. This is a Washington Post Monmouth poll. And the numbers seem to be this. Trump, 58%. Haley, 32% among potential Republican primary voters. They've both gone up in support. Well, it's part because there are fewer candidates. Um, back in September, it was Trump 46 and Haley 18. But it's a two-person race now, as you know. Her favorability, I guess in part because of his attacks, has declined from 59% a few months ago to 45% now. But 66 of those responding to this survey say they have a favorable impression of Trump. Um, We all knew South Carolina was going to be tough. It's been been years since she was governor. The Republican Party has changed drastically, dramatically. It is now much more of a Trump party. She's more of a traditional Republican. But just to see that number in black and white, 26 points, with about three weeks to go, I mean, even if she narrows the gap by incessant campaigning, let's say she loses by 20 or 15 or even 12, and I'm not predicting that, but everybody's going to say the obvious. She was governor there for eight years. Or it might have been a couple less than eight because Trump... Uh, Picked her for U.N. ambassador. But two terms. And she can't come closer than that to Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, he's a former president. So as the Washington Post says in one analysis, Haley needs more than a home state bump. She needs a wholesale reinvention of the primary race to make this a real contest. The only good news here is, well, it's interesting, public perception. Seven out of ten voters think Trump would probably beat Biden. Forty-two percent think Trump would definitely beat Biden. Only 21 percent say the same of Haley. Although, Paul, I talked about the other day, shows her beating Biden by a number of points. And these, of course, have hypothetical matchups. While Trump loses to Biden. But again, there's a lot of polls and they don't always show the same thing. So this analysis in the post, second big state in a row, featuring an unusually favorable setup for her. Even though New Hampshire has more independent voters who are allowed to vote in a opposite party primary. That would make a loss or even a near miss especially damaging. 
I don't know if she's even going to get to a near miss. It's almost like this is Trump's party. I don't know why you have to qualify it. This has been Donald Trump's Republican Party, I don't know, since 2016. I mean, it was sort of a hostile takeover running against, you know, all those establishment figures, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, and on and on, the first time Trump ran. As long as actual Republicans are determining the GOP nominee, it'll almost certainly be Trump. And the piece also points out that presidential candidates sometimes lose their home state. Elizabeth Warren finished third in Massachusetts in the last election. Marco Rubio lost Florida to Trump in 2016 by 19 points. You know, you can look at it a number of different ways, which is um, the people in your state know your successes, but they also know your weaknesses. Maybe they think you're fine as governor or senator, but not presidential material. Maybe on some level they think the state is running fine and they don't want to lose their governor to Washington. This is obviously in the case of incumbents. Um, It's just interesting. Haley says she's in through Super Tuesday. Remember the primary, the first two South Carolina primaries at the end of this February. Uh, Okay, let's move on. Story number three. Alan Weisselberg is in plea talks with Manhattan prosecutors that would require him to plead guilty to perjury. People with knowledge of the matter telling the New York Times. Now, if the name doesn't ring uh, immediately a bell or it sounds vaguely familiar, he was the chief financial officer of the Trump organization. And, you know, they worked extremely closely for years. And Weisselberg was the classic sort of behind-the-scenes, green-eye-shade type. And he's already pleaded guilty once. So these are the Manhattan prosecutors I'm referring to work for the DA, Alvin Bragg, who has brought an indictment of Trump, the most nakedly political of all all the four indictments, against him in the Stormy Daniels business. And, you know, it's a tax record violation or however they cast it because the money to the hush money to keep her quiet was passed through Michael Cohen, who also pleaded guilty and has served jail time. So, this is a little odd. So they're trying to get, the DA's people are trying to get Weisselberg to cooperate about Trump's financial crimes or alleged financial crimes, or I don't know what this involves beyond the civil suit, which we should be getting a verdict on any day now, the civil suit challenging fraud headed by A.G. Letitia James, fraud in the conduct of his business. But now, even though this potential agreement could affect Trump, it could also strengthen Alvin Bragg's hand, according to this story, before 
the former president's trial could deter other, other witnesses from lying on stand. Perjury charges could discredit Weisselberg, who has disputed details of the prosecution's evidence. So the way this works is, look, dude, you've already been to jail. I don't know if he's out or not. And we know you're fiercely loyal. He's known for that. But, oh, I see. He went to Rikers Island, the famous and notorious uh, prison in New York City. And that's when the DA said that the prosecutors could file new charges. Now, if they don't agree on a plea deal, in which uh, Weisselberg would have to plead guilty, then there could be another indictment of Weisselberg. Hmm. And that is where that situation stands. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Now for some congressional politics. CNN's guy, Raju was interviewing Congressman Troy Nels, talking to him about why the two parties can't reach a deal on the border. He just says blatantly, why would we do anything right now to help him with that 33%, meaning Biden's approval rating? Do you believe if Joe Biden's approval rating was 53%, we would even be talking about the border? And he calls the bill hogwash. Well, It seems now they can just come out and say we're doing this to damage Biden and it doesn't even cause much of a stir. Remember, it was, um, there are other examples of this, but Kevin McCarthy, before he became speaker, but he was in line, I believe, to become the number two Republican in the House. And then he was interviewed and said something that made clear that they were talking about the politics, we're going to do this or we're not going to do this because of the politics, and it was a kind of an uproar, and he didn't get that job at that time. Uh, here's Chuck Grassley. He says he may oppose this bipartisan bill because it makes the president look good. Donald Trump said it makes the Republicans look bad. None of us have actually seen the fine print here. Grassley, who won't be insulted if I say he's been around forever, Makes the president look good. So is that the basis? I mean, you're complaining. I have a lot of respect for Chuck Grassley, but the GOP has been complaining for years about the mess at the border with total justification, particularly in the last three years under Biden. And now they're all just saying, well, we're not going to pass this bill because we don't want to help the president. It's an election year. This is interesting about Mike Johnson, the new speaker. Um... So he was talking to reporters for about six minutes at a recent, I, won't, I wouldn't call it a news conference. It's, you know, it's just a bunch of reporters grabbing him in the hall. Then he shut down reporters' questions, the shouted questions, with a silent cue, says the New York Times. He held his smartphone to his ear and speedwalked out of sight. It's a ploy that Johnson has frequently used to dodge questions since he became speaker. Now, before he was elected speaker, the Louisiana Republican routinely stopped for hallway interviews. That's what they all do. I mean, there are areas where reporters can roam freely. They see somebody, they try to buttonhole them. They are a staple of a lawmaker's life on Capitol Hill. 
and Johnson would often stop and talk in the marble corridors. But since winning the gavel, he's taken to avoiding that ritual. Talking or pretending to talk on the phone. As he strides through the Capitol from his office to the House floor and back, his preferred posture is inaccessible. And it most often involves using his iPhone as his buffer. That's kind of a shield against unwanted hallway interrogation. I like this. An all-purpose nonverbal rebuff that conveys busyness without seeming to stonewall and carries with it the possibility of extreme awkwardness if ignored. And then the B says, is the fake phone call a sick kid or the president of the United States? It's hard for journalists to tell who, if anyone, is on the other end of the line, and that is the point. So it's kind of like hanging a giant do not disturb sign around your neck, particularly on days when the new speaker knows he's going to be asked about something you don't want to talk about. Well, let's talk about the president and the war. I guess I should specify which war, this one, the Mideast War. He signed an executive order yesterday imposing sanctions on, this is more symbolic than anything else, but imposing sanctions on four settlers in the West Bank. You know, West Bank settlements have exploded under Bibi Netanyahu. And so they go there, you know, um, with the encouragement of the Israeli government. So the order Biden has signed says these four have committed violence against Palestinians. And it certainly sends a strong signal to the Israelis. So they can't access any property or assets held in the U.S. They can't receive any funds or services that go through the American financial system. They can't send money to the U.S. or have anyone do that for them. State Department saying they are responsible for unacceptable acts of violence in the West Bank. So just for example, David Kai Khazdi, Khazdeh, led a riot, including setting cars and buildings on fire, assaulting Palestinian civilians and causing property damage that led to the death of one civilian. Ainan Tanjil attacked Palestinian farmers and Israeli peace activists with stones and clubs, injuries that required medical treatment. Shalom Zikerman assaulted Israeli activists in the West Bank and attempted to break the windows of passing cars with activists inside. So Bibi's office put out a statement saying the absolute majority of settlers in Judea and Samaria, what Israel calls those settlement areas, are law-abiding citizens, many of whom are currently fighting regularly and in the reserves for the defense of Israel. Israel acts against all lawbreakers everywhere, so there is no room for exceptional measures in this regard. Um, that's the diplomatic version. The uh, more raw version would be back off, screw you, we've got it under control, and you don't need to be messing with our Israeli settlers on the West Bank. Story number five, which begins with an obscenity. I haven't said a whole lot of BS today. <laughs> well, first I have to start, I have to backtrack a little bit. Peace and Politico, this shows you the 
level of reporting here. Not that it's not interesting, but President Biden has described Donald Trump to longtime friends and close aides as a sick F who delights in others' misfortunes. According to three people who have heard the president use the profane description. Look, I mean, I don't know of a recent president, including Trump, including Obama, including Clinton, who didn't curse in private the way most adults do when they're frustrated or angry about something. So the F part doesn't bother me. It's the sick part that I think gives it a special sting. And now comes Axios with a very gossipy and kind of fascinating media piece. When White House aides appear on MSNBC's Morning Joe, they're often booked between 7 and 7.40 Eastern. That's so they'll reach one crucial and loyal viewer, President Biden. Biden's years-long love of MSNBC's morning show affects how the White House runs. The president often calls Joe Scarborough to get Scarborough's take on issues and sometimes vent about media coverage, according to people familiar with the relationship. During the day, Biden has long asked his staff whether they saw a story, poll, segment that had been on the show. He's included show regulars in off-the-record conversations with policy experts. And Biden pays attention to uh, Mike Barnacle, longtime Boston Globe columnist in the past, foreign policy expert Richard Haas, historian John Meacham, who was moonlighting, writing speeches for Biden, so at that point was no longer an MSNBC contributor. Now let me just say one thing. Donald Trump had favorite media people that he talked to, number of them on Fox. And the thing about Scarborough is he's a former Republican congressman, but is now, you know, a daily harsh and passionate critic of Donald Trump and has been since he sort of broke with him in the middle of Trump's first campaign. So, Of course, Biden loves the show. It's an opinion show. And it's generally very favorable to Biden, sometimes criticizing him on different things. But basically, beating up on Trump is the staple, you know, particularly now when he's about to wrap up the Republican nomination. And, of course, you've got all the legal cases. Okay, Kamala Harris. She watches Morning Joe, too. She and her husband hosted a dinner last month at their vice presidential residence for Joe and Mika Brzezinski, his wife and co-host. Oh, aides have noted that Harris also tunes into Fox News and occasionally watches The Five. Some aides have felt that Fox News' relentlessly negative coverage, first casting her as Biden's all-powerful puppeteer, then later portraying her as incompetent, can drive Harris to distraction. It got in her head said a former Harris aide, and caused high anxiety because they were constantly hammering her. So, because Biden watches the show, his aides have to watch the show or keep track of the show because 
the president may then ask questions about a poll he saw, about a segment he saw, and you can't be like, oh, I don't know, I was uh, out taking a run or taking my kid to school. Particularly Biden aide Steve Rochetti seems to watch much of the four-hour show. They reference the show. They think the show gives Biden a fairer shake on issues than other news shows and media outlets. Yeah, no wonder they think that, because the show is pretty pro-Biden. In fact, I recall uh, the president giving Scarborough an interview last year. Mika sat down with Jill Biden in January. One of the military experts who's come on the show is retired Admiral James Stavridis and is sometimes in an off-the-record briefing with other experts at the White House. Biden takes notes. His second favorite show is Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN. Biden has quoted from Zakaria's show at length. He also did an interview with Fareed. Biden respects these voices on cable TV, especially when they applaud his actions. He loves that. He loves that. Human nature. Um, And in fact, Joe said today about this sick F thing, calling Trump sick and F, that, and look, obviously that was deliberately leaked to make Biden look like a tough guy behind the scenes. Um, Joe said, you know, not that he should say these things publicly, but that it makes him seem more human. It makes him seem more relatable or words to that effect. So hope you've had a blanking good time today. Hope you have a bleeping good weekend coming up. Try to keep it maybe PG 13 here. Uh, don't forget to catch media buzz. We've got a really good show coming up folks. And I will see you back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.